Hi, this is Sean Smallman. Welcome to Dispatch 7. Today I'll be talking with Dr. Mary Lynn Steckley at Carleton University. She's a faculty member in the Global and International Studies Department. We'll be talking about her experience doing fieldwork in Haiti, as well as her thoughts about international experiential learning. Mary Lynn, I'm so glad that you could join uh, us on the podcast today. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to decide to work on Haiti? Sure. So uh, my name is Mary Lynn Steckley. I think this is a funny question because I started working in Haiti in 2007, and now we're 2021. And as a faculty member now living in Canada, there's some distance, obviously. So now I feel in this uh, sort of life, I'm turning 40 this year. I'm, you know, intermittent fasting to keep my chocolate consumption in check. I'm like worried about my son going on Instagram. That's sort of my, my reality in Canada, but I still have, um, the real sense of commitment to Haiti. And I lived in Haiti for over five years. Um, and I, I really struggle with being a faculty member in and living in Canada now and having that long lived experience in Haiti. So I started working in Haiti in 2007. And for me, it wasn't, it wasn't an obvious next step. And it, it was sort of um, like probably with many people, sort of your life circumstances impact where you where you head and what disciplines you become engaged in. But I actually did more of my work before before Haiti in Asia, and I thought that's where I would end up uh, going. So I I think there's you know like a whole personal legacy here that impacts our decisions. But uh, for me, I grew up not traveling. I'm from a single parent family. And we didn't, we, you know, we'd go up north, rent a cottage, but I it was never overseas until I was in university. I was in my second year and basically I needed to be able to find a way to afford tuition and to reduce my OSAP debt or government, government loan debt. And so I just heard from a friend that you could go teach in Taiwan. So I did that, made money teaching English in Taiwan to be able to fund the rest of my degree. But it really, that experience for me was sort of a real stark um, awareness raising about global inequality. So, I mean, Taiwan is a very developed, wealthy country, but the inequality for me in the urban space was so stark that I found it, I found it really jarring. So, you know, hovels near skyscrapers, you know, people driving rundown scooters next to like bulletproof, again, air conditioned, big SUV Hummers. So coming from a small town place in Canada, that was jarring. And I think it really set me on a path to be more interested in the global and international. So I did, I pursued a master's degree in international development. And that's when I started working on Asia. So when living in Taiwan, I traveled to Thailand and uh, Hong Kong. And when the tsunami hit in 2004, the Indian Ocean tsunami. Yeah. I, I was during my master's then I wanted to go back. So I went to Thailand and studied disaster vulnerability. And again, it was it was just an awareness raising for me of how certain people of certain demographics, how, how significant poverty was and the status of being other, you know, Karen minority groups, so-called illegal Burmese people were the most severely impacted by the disaster, but also the most severely impacted by bad aid 
bad post-disaster recovery plans. And for me, this often went, this often aligned with uh, religious missionary groups. So I thought that I've also been kind of on this pendulum between wanting to do boots on the ground work, working with NGOs, and then getting frustrated with that and wanting to pursue scholarly theoretical work and just trying to figure out which of these options is the best use of my life and where can I most make change. And so after my master's degree, I was just like too much writing. Does this journal article go anywhere? I need to do boots on the ground stuff. So we had, I grew up in the Mennonite Brethren Church and the Mennonite Central Committee was always kind of part of that um, experience, the experience of the church. And I really valued the work that they do. And so my partner and I started looking up work with the Mennonite Central Committee, MCC. I thought we would go to Cambodia, really, because we had I had a research associate position in Cambodia and in Indonesia uh, right after my master's degree. And we saw MCCers, they're called Mennonite Central Committee workers in Cambodia. And I really valued after having been exposed to the life of the, the NGO, again, bulletproof SUVs, people lived in kind of gated communities, air conditioning when other people don't have it, any food you want, all of that. That is a manifestation of inequality that happens in places of scarcity, in low income contexts. And I just felt really allergic to that. And I saw MCCers living in a different way, really. And I know MCC has goals of pacifism, living in community, doing aid and relief by accompaniment. Um, and I know many NGOs have these goals, but I, I saw it lived out. And so that I, my partner and I started looking on work with MCC and Haiti came up. And I remember being like, I don't know anything about Haiti. Like, I'm, I'm not interested in this. And so we let one job pass and then another job came up and it was a policy analyst position. And I had done policy work in my master's degree. My partner was a political scientist. And we thought, like, let's throw our names in here. And we got it. And I was like, what are we even, what are we doing? And when we landed in Haiti, we had worked in Cambodia on, and I was working on landfill sites, research on value-added waste, uh, value-added recycling practices of scavenging communities who lived on landfill sites. So this was a, it was a very low-income context. Um, and it was difficult to see the poverty in that place. But when we landed in Haiti, I knew it was not, it was already not at the same level of any of the poverty that I saw uh, in Asia. And in that way, it was a happenstance arrival to come to Haiti. And it was talking about Haiti and my experience there is, it feels again, like this juxtaposition of it being a very, grueling, difficult experience because people are in such need and such poverty. And it's so close to Miami. I mean, it's an hour away from the United States. Even when you pop over to the Dominican Republic, just the the wealth, the, the livelihoods, the agriculture that people have is so much different. But But the other side of it is Haiti is a beautiful country. The people are beautiful. I learned so much. I so miss, you know, the drum beats and the landscapes and people connected to each other in a community and the spirit of resistance and community. Um, so I find it difficult to uh, to talk about. But can you tell us about your research and what questions you wanted to answer? I first went to Haiti in 2007. I feel like my my initial work as a policy analyst and what came to be a food justice advocate led to my doctoral research and has led to my 
work as a scholar now. So I think that part is really important because I didn't know, I wouldn't have known what my research questions were without the mentorship of, you know, my Haitian friends and colleagues. And I think that part really needs to be emphasized because my research did not come out of my own brain at all. It's really like, it really is a collaborative endeavor. So I started working in Haiti in 2007 with the Mennonite Central Committee. And I don't know if you'll remember, but at that time, we were in the middle of the world food crisis. So many countries were experiencing the world food crisis, including uh, Haiti. And we had just arrived. It was April, I think, of 2007 when the food crisis was really hit Haiti pretty seriously. And Josh and I, my partner and I, lived on a pretty busy street, Delma, in Haiti. We were like street facing on the third floor. I think I've told you this story before, Sean, but we were on the third floor in our apartment building. And the protests, they were, the protesters were calling for food justice, really. They wanted a food system that worked for them, that was pro-poor. And I remember we had only been in Haiti a couple of months, but they were so peaceful. Thousands of people started marching, marching down the streets with branches of palm. And I thought, my initial thought was, this is amazing that people could come together and mobilize. I never saw anything like this, in any, definitely not in Canada, that people believed in something so deeply and would have a peaceful approach to being able to remedy the food scarcity issue. And then it was militarized very quickly by the UN and you know, many Haitians have significant disdain for the United Nations and the way that the troops have militarized the country. And this was also a shock for me, having come from Canada and never really being aware of um, criticisms of the United Nations. But it was militarized quickly by the United Nations and the Haitian police force who came in with tanks and tear gas. And that's when things got more violent. So most of the crowd left. And just like you see in other places, it becomes more male and younger men who start, you know, burning tires and things become chaos. And it was like that for three days, which was pretty scary when we had just arrived um, in Haiti. So I've said this before, but there is no electricity in Haiti, not a lot to do. My partner and I played a lot of backgammon, but my son was born about nine months after the food crisis hit. So this, this was really the start because becoming a mother, a white mother in a context where, you know, white skinned people are scarce and working for an organization that had commitments to accompaniment, which meant we didn't have a car. So unlike many NGOs, which, um, you know, shoot people around in their bulletproof cars and go into gates, into their homes or into embassies, I was taking tap taps. And then I was pregnant. I was like a pregnant white woman taking tap taps. I mean, look at me, look at me is basically what my body was doing, which is not what I wanted, but that's what, that's what I was putting off to the world. And so being a mother in that context was such a huge source of learning. And it really strengthened the mentorship that I got from other people. So this was how we started working with Ari Nicola, who became my mentor. So Ari was working in food justice and started mentoring me on how to hold my body, how to respond to men who would make snide comments, how to respond to people who would call me like the big bellied blanc white person when I went through the streets. Um, and Ari was the one when, who, who started calling my son Joasis when he was in the womb. 
So he was calling him that. We had a speaking tour to Canada. Ari came to Canada and was speaking about food justice and, uh, you know, Haiti's history of slavery and a whole bunch of other things at universities in, in Canada. We were traveling with him. And so when my son was born, I knew part of his name had to be Joassis. He's still called Joassis at school because he's in French school here. But when I went to record that, to the so the after you give birth, you know, the nurse comes around and says, what's your baby's name? And I said, Joassis. And she was like, no, she shook her head and was like, you cannot name a white baby Joassis. That is a peasant name. It was such a moment of clarity for me, like the level, the degree of disdain for Haiti's black peasantry by the world, by North America, the extent of discrimination and abuse that Haiti has faced by the international community, but then at the level of Haitians themselves, this social hierarchy that is has such parallels with race. The race, class, and social hierarchy are so connected. So that was a real moment of learning for me. And those things were all coming together. Like the the racial connections, my own my own baggage as a white person living in Haiti and the historical baggage that that carried in my body on the streets. The food injustice, I was working with Ari, who was teaching me about, you know, food policies that were biased against peasant producers at the international and the local level. Um, and then this teaching about symbols and representations of what was appropriate for, you know, lighter skinned people and darker skinned people that was reflected in one instance in this name of Joassis. And so that really, that those three years learning from Ari was what framed my research question, which is why are peasants so devalued and what are the prospects for change? And that was the question that drove my doctoral research, which was focused on peasant organizations and then came to be focused around food sovereignty, because that is what peasants are calling for, to resist large scale landowners, large scale corporations coming up and making banana republics like they like has been done in so many other countries, to be able to have sovereignty over what you produce, what kinds of chemicals or not go into your food system, what kinds of foods are either squashing or enabling community health and environmental health in local contexts. So it did really emerge out of Ari's mentorship and then out of the mentorship of the people I spoke with on the ground. Because after that three years of living in Port-au-Prince and working as a policy analyst and food justice advocate, we took up, my partner and I took up another three-year position in Desam, in Haiti's Artibonite Valley, very rural place. And that's when I did my doctoral research and was pregnant then with my daughter. I decided, let's do it again. Let's become hyper-visible. And then she was born... I think in out of spite with blonde hair and blue eyes in and even yeah I was like this is what this is what I get like I don't have those features I'm brown eyed brown haired I was like for sure but yeah she she came out of firecracker right from the start <laughs> What uh challenges did you face and what did you find during your research So the challenges of living in Haiti for me were really related to being other, being someone in a, a skin that did not match the majority. And I don't want to, I don't want to liken that to what the reverse of that looks like, you know, being a visible minority in a white context. And I am obviously embodying privilege in my, in my skin color. 
but it is important to recognize that being different in any society comes with challenges. And for me, that was a significant challenge. Um, and the other is around health, obviously. And I think that has made me, I hope, a strong advocate for better food and health policy in Haiti and has centered my work around social determinants of health and food sovereignty because I think we can be aware and read about people's dire health circumstances in other countries. For me, living it and experiencing it was one of my most, one of the greatest challenges and, and particularly seeing my kids sick. So those are the two things and I can share a little bit about that if you'd like. So the skin color thing was really was really interesting because in Haiti, if you if you go as a white person, you'll be called blanc. And it sort of means white person. And it sort of also means foreigner. And it's sort of also, it, it's a reflection of skin color because the word blanc literally means white. But at the same time, often Haitians will call someone a, like a, a black person from the United States who comes to Desam, who comes to the Artibonite Valley, will be called blanc. Or a rich person from Port-au-Prince might be called blanc in a rural context. So th there really is this race, class, foreigner kind of connections all in this this title of blanc. For me, I it was mostly hostile <laughs> when you'd get blanc, but sometimes it was sort of endearing. Sometimes it was sort of endearing. So I remember when I first went to Desam, I was always blanc, and. Joacis, my son, and Solette, my daughter, they were windows, they were sources of opportunity for me to make meaningful connections. So when we first went to Desam, I was blanc, I was blanc, I was blanc. When Joacis was born, and he he lived in Desam until he was almost five, so he could speak Creole. And he was just Joacis. I mean, sometimes they would call him T Blanc and give him little blanc and give him a piece of bread at the market, but he was Joacis. And it took me I mean, he had this friend named Belando who was our neighbor. And Belando would be like, can Joacis come play? And he would call me Blanc for like two years. I, Belando was, you know, he came to my house. We did crafts together. We ate lunch together. We went for walks. Like we went all of, there were these little, uh, I think they're called love peas, Grand Léglise. We would go collecting the Grand, like we, we went all over the place, but I was Blanc at least for over a year, for sure. And then in the community, I became Mama Joacis, which was my shining star moment. <laughs> I was like, I am not yet. I am not yet an individual in my own right. Mary Lynn is not something people call me, but Mama Joacis is a step up from Blanc. And that's kind of, that's kind of what it was, what it was like. And I, there were these two extremes of being Blanc. On one hand, sort of deified or like an overblown courtesy is given to Blanc. So I would be prioritized at hospitals, at the supermarket, in Port-au-Prince, at banks. You know, people would try to encourage you to go up the line. There was one time I was walking in a, like on a really rural path. And I noticed a girl coming up behind me and she was probably 13 or 14. She was holding a little baby and I could feel them touching me. And I turned around and I was like, what's, what's going on? Like, what's with that? And the baby had, was paralyzed on one side. And she said, we're trying to touch you for healing because you're closer to God. And I am not saying that that is a pervasive idea, but there is a privileging that happens with being blanc for sure, for sure. And even that we get these 
like positions the audacity that we can go to a country and think that we can make meaningful change and it's usually young people because it's a it's a place of scarcity right so anyway there's that side of it and then there's also a real demonization of being blonde which has more merit <laughs> that angle because of the history of colonialism because of the atrocities that have been committed again and continue to be committed against Haiti by the international community, by the UN. You've heard of the sex crimes by uh, UN troops in Haiti. And so it was like existing, never really knowing how the community was going to see you. And the kids were a meaningful opportunity for me to connect with other women, to, to connect with people through the kids because they loved them. And But I do think even they experienced this kind of discord because it's not any kid who would wander into a poor market and would be given treats and bread and people would say things like oh your curly haired little blonde child looks like an angel you know which you know people say that here as well but they obviously were so doted on and their their skin color did absolutely have to do with that at the same time people would say you know if if Joasis would be going down the street with Belando and they'd be having crackers someone might say to, to Hayden, give me a little piece of that cracker. Like, give me that cracker. That's the, often they say that as a greeting way. And if he said no, people would say he's cheap, just like a blanc. And he was so little, right? So I know that even in their experience, they had to navigate these things. And I have a chapter kind of on this because I remember the moment he was four and he realized, he's like, why are they calling me blanc? You know, and... It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing for a parent to navigate because your child feels connected. He speaks the language. He has his friends. You don't see yourself in that way. But so that was part of it. And then I think the health bit was also. Uh, I feel like talking about health as a challenge with field work mm -hmm. is really important because it's not something we want to um, usually cover because it's personal, but it, it's a real obstacle. So if you could say a little bit about that and what your experience was, I think that's interesting. Yeah, so Haiti is a place with very poor quality healthcare. Very few people have access to any quality of healthcare. Um, it was very difficult in Port-au-Prince, but when we moved to Desarm, it was even more difficult. I mean, it's a place, there's no potable water. We had an outside latrine and it means that people bathe in the river. We had to go collect drums. We would either bathe in the river or go collect drums of water, bring it to the house on a truck and dump the water into the into these big gallon drums to be able to bathe. Just that is so difficult. I, I don't think people can imagine just how difficult it is to carry out daily life without running water. And then you have the rainy season, which brings mosquitoes. So you need a way to deal with mosquitoes, which brings malaria, which all of my family had. I've had it a couple times. That is such a bone-breaking illness. And my best friend, whose name was Solat, my best friend in Haiti, was in chronic states of malaria. You know, you become your own. That, that book, Where There Is No Doctor, was like our Bible, really. Like, just what do we have? We figure it out ourselves because it's, it's difficult to be able to talk to a doctor. But I could just go down, bring 50 goods, like $1.25, and buy the chloroquine that I knew that I needed when you diagnosed yourself with malaria. <laughs> sounds insane but so many people could not do that and so they'd just be struggling through this these chronic phases of malaria not really knowing what they had or you know getting access to the drugs that they need willy-nilly 
And the water was also a huge source of parasites. We had Giardia and unknown stomach parasites. It's just so debilitating. I remember, you know, by our second year, I was keeping, we had four people in our family and I was going so crazy with health that I started keeping a calendar that I would give us gold stars if we had a day without someone having to (laughs) address their, it's sort of funny, but it's like, this is what people's, I feel like the agonizing thing about this is the geniuses that are in places like Haiti that can never, ever achieve even close to their full potential to contribute meaningfully to our world. They have so much to offer so much potential there that we're squashing for want of very easy provisioning of clean water, clean water, electricity. There's no excuse for that, especially so close to the U S and Canada. The water was a big deal because there were always mosquitoes in it. And then if you have any kind of roof, there's birds, pigeons, drops down. Josh made gutters out of PVC, spliced the PVC in half. So we had kind of gutters that could run into the rain barrel. And then you'd Clorox it, which is also not great. But every anything you ate had to be Clorox for 15 minutes. So you have a mango or you have anything. You can just think of the labor that women are putting into. Like when I would go buy the rice at the market, you have to sort it out for rocks. You have to douse everything in Clorox water for at least 15 minutes before you eat. Then we had two little kids like that's me. And we still had a propane fridge and a solar panel on the roof that could give us some electricity. Most people don't have any of that. So the logistics of day-to-day life of just putting food in people's mouths in your court, in your laku, in your household was so challenging. And then you're definitely going to get sick. Like we had boils, we had parasites, we had malaria, we had dengue. This is debilitating stuff. And that's why I say Haiti is such a a beautiful place. And I'm so glad that I've had the opportunity to learn from the community who supported me, who informed my research, who I disproportionately advantaged from because now I'm a faculty member in Canada with all the electricity and water that I want, um, which feels sick. We don't understand how just the day-to-day things could be made so much easier for so little cost. We make people's lives grueling, and that's the side of it. It was, it was grueling, so much of it. I, and I don't, I don't say that in kind of a flippant way. But if you've ever had the flu, you know how horrible it is to be sick. And I, my daughter, my kids were born there too, and my daughter was born of emergency C-section in Hospital Albert Schweitzer. Albert Schweitzer is known for, I mean, definitely a different view on medicine. So Albert Schweitzer, if I'm understanding his vision correctly, had sort of a prejudiced vision of healthcare, which was not to provide the best, but to do the most with what your dollar could give you to provide everybody a basic standard of care. And Hospital Albert Schweitzer is the only place in the Artibonite that anybody can get care. And that's where I had my daughter. And it is like, I, you don't want to criticize places, but like it is just a difficult it's just difficult even to remember that there's places like that that exist and that's the best case scenario for people the lineups are i mean sometimes it would be six to eight hours with an appointment before you could see a doctor legit in the hot sun people were coming in i don't know so many lives that could be saved that aren't for want basically of money we have the resources and we don't do it 
that's what it feels like. It feels like every day we don't do it. So that's the, that's the health situation. I feel like for me, it became a very personal battle between the safety of my children and the commitment to wanting to do the work that I was doing. And that like, you know, sometimes you get pressure from family. Like, are you naive? Why are you, why are you doing this to your kids? Like, it felt like, do you really love your kids sometimes? Like, why are you putting them through these things? Like why? And I really struggle with that still. Like I have a lot of guilt about why would I put my kids in a situation where they can get malaria? You know, Joasis, my son, he had this really weird episode where one night he just stopped being able to talk or walk. He had a seizure at the at the table. And we went to the first kind of clinic where they were supposed to give him an IV and they they didn't have the IV, they didn't have the drugs they needed. And then we went to Hospital Albert Schweitzer and it was so understaffed, it's packed. The nurse was half asleep because they, they're working insanely anyway. And he couldn't walk or talk for three days. And we got evac'd to SickKids Hospital in Toronto. And it's such, like we had a friend who one of the, his, what he had was never clear. So, but, but the purpose of the story is to say how much privilege we had that we could be shot to sick kids hospital, quarantined at sick kids hospital, get him the help that he needed. It was never diagnosed, but there's people in Haiti who have things like epilepsy that could be very easily treated. We know we have a, a, a guy that we knew in the community who would just fall into the canal and people would have to save him because he was having a seizure or fall into the cactuses easily treatable. And it was difficult to choose. This sounds silly, right? Because it's difficult to choose your people. Like, well, I'm going to get myself some chloroquine because I have malaria or I can evac my son to sick kids hospital. And that's, it felt that real, like make breakfast for your kids. And there's kids outside who, you know, you do what you can, but I think in global and international studies, that is a real, that is a real struggle. And I, I so worry with students that the burnout, it is, it does, it's because it's grueling. You can't, I feel like I can't do that forever. I don't know how to continue to make those choices or keep my kids there. Right. And maybe that seems like I'm not committed enough and maybe I'm not, but it feels like being like the one grain of salt in a bowl of sugar or the opposite. And you just, it's exhausting. And I think we need more people committed to places that are living in scarcity, low income context, but it's hard to convince people to do that. And then when people go, it can be so difficult. Um, And I think one of my, what I feel strongly committed to as a female academic who comes from, you know, a relatively poor background. I mean, it is not like Haiti, but you know, small town poverty, Canada looks a lot different, but I feel very committed to trying to show, like not saying I'm some kind of mentor, but to young women in global studies to show this is what, this is what your life can look like. And this, these are the things that you should be considering when you're moving forward, because the reality for women, I do think is a little bit different just biologically, because if you want to be if you want to have a partner and have children and you're engaged in global studies, that is a difficult thing. 
And I mean, you you probably experience this in your own research. Anybody who's doing global work, you actually need to travel and leave to go and do your research, right? And so when you have children, anybody, man or woman, is always making these decisions about when do I go? I don't know if you have this anxiety, Sean, but I always do. Like, I don't want to leave them. Like, I love my kids, but I feel like I have to do this work to be able to continue to publish, which is the thing that's getting me paid. Like, <laughs> so it's a real struggle. And then I chose to have the kids in the field kind of because of that, like because of those struggles and it's difficult. And I know I have a friend in global affairs, Canada, which is like sort of like USAID, I think maybe or or your international development. Yeah. Um, And she said the divorce rate is so high. The separation rate is so high because of this, like people or families are trying to juggle with how do we do meaningful international work as a partnership and make sure that both partners feel connected in their relationship like they have a voice in what they're doing and when you have children all of these dimensions come into play but I do think it, I think it's possible I think it's something that young women in global and international studies need to think about more seriously earlier on right so just you know to, pre- to prepare and have those conversations and think about priorities and their own aspirations yeah I think that the the question of health personal health it's one that we don't talk about enough in the trade-offs. I've had students come back from being in the field and be sick for months afterwards. I've had colleagues who've had parasitic infection and they never entirely recovered in some way. You know, they always have sort of stomach issues. And so I think that we all, if we're doing field work in developing countries and if we're not staying necessarily in the capital city or if we're going out, at some point you're going to deal with these issues that you described. Now, I think yours were more extreme than most people face, but somebody who's in Northeastern Brazil or in Mozambique or other countries will face that too. And it it does, it, it's something that's sort of not even considered, I think, in our training. Mm-hmm. Like you had to figure this out on your own. You got the book and did it. So I'm really grateful that you talked about it, but I want to change the subject a little bit because you've talked about your research, but you're really an exceptional teacher, which is something that I saw during your year at Portland State. Um, And you were telling me that you recently taught a global craft class. Can you tell us a little bit more about that class and your experience teaching it? Because you were telling me a little bit about it before you taught the class, and I was really intrigued. Mm -hmm. I would love to. So I'm super excited about this class. This is coming. Okay, so the class is called Craft as a Global Social Relation. And it is an international experiential learning course that is virtual, which I think is sort of the first of its kind. Um, It's the first one that I've ever found. And it came for me out of a place of seeing inequality in international experiential learning opportunities, which for me has sort of become a second research program and area of interest. And I think part, part of this is coming from my background again, because like I said, in my degree, I didn't, I wasn't able to do, I couldn't pay for study abroad or an international co-op. I went to Taiwan literally to make money to pay for my degree. Like that was my, that was my motivation. And I have a lot of students like that. So in, I don't, I don't know if all global studies programs have an experiential learning component, but a lot of them have a travel-based work option, internship, or study abroad at another university. Those are sort of the dominant traditional international experiential learning options. And I, three years ago, 2017, I started teaching an e-volunteering course. So this was pre-COVID and I've done research on that course and realized that that class is a catch basin 
for BIPOC students, so students who are visible minorities, um, higher disproportionate rate of women in those classes, disproportionate rate of students who identify as having a disability, usually a mental health disability that would prevent travel, dependence at home, and low income. So why is it the case that we say that we're offering international studies, global studies degrees in an equitable way when one of the key components, experiential learning, is so critical to students' degrees. It's such, a, it's such an important part of professional development and personal growth. And yet the e-volunteering class is this catch basing for these underprivileged groups. That to me was a real problem. It still continues to be a source of frustration. And I want to commit to doing something about this because I feel that all students should have the opportunity, should be based on will and desire and opportunity to grow and learn and not on the depth of your pocketbook or your parents' pocketbooks. Because the reality is students who get to go do those long-term international placement or co-op opportunities, they pay five to $10,000 to do that. Easily. Easily. Yes. Those UN Insight Global whatever partnerships are disproportionately taken up by white students and disproportionately taken up by students of privilege in terms of class, students who have money. And, you know, again, we're losing out. There's so many bright, brilliant, dedicated students from different contexts that could be informing our global affairs faculties, our uh, gov- whatever the government office is in each country that does international relations. Those are, we want those people to be contributing to society. We need to give them, we shouldn't be graduating them with a disadvantage. We should be preparing them just as well. We should be preparing all of our students just as well to be able to succeed post-graduation. And I, I see this as a significant pedagogical disservice in global and international studies in my program, but across the board. And so I've been trying to think about ways that we can do international experience of learning because the university needs things to be cheap and I need things to be more inclusive. (laughs) Students need that. So the craft is a global social relations course was coming from this place of how do I create a low cost international experience opportunity now with COVID in a virtual context. But I think it has merit beyond COVID. I think the online international experiential learning possibilities are so many. And I, in my small little brain, thought of this one way, but I know that other people will have bigger and better ideas. So the idea is to focus on the global. So our program is very international relations, international law, international diplomacy, policy, that kind. Our experiential learning options are also like that. Professional development, seek employment, I wanted to kind of challenge that a little bit and think about like intercultural learning, engaging with people from around the world, to think about global cultures as more central to, as as one key component to experiential learning. It doesn't have to be all, you know, personal and professional growth focused. And craft, that craft bit came out because the New York Times, I was reading the New York Times book review and this book, Craft and American History, I think it was by Glenn Adamson came out and I ordered it because I'm like, this is so interesting. And so that book does a history of craft in the United States and talks about class and the emergence of craft, you know, you know, blacksmithing, um, carpentry, all of those traditional crafts. And I thought this would be so cool in a global context. And so craft is something where, you know, indigeneity is articulated in, in the book. Um, colonial relations are articulated and also 
innovation and skill. And so all of these things are coming together. So that's why the craft bit. And I thought, I think I can get workshop leaders from around the world who can come and connect with us virtually and students can do the things that they're doing because it's supposed to be experiential learning. You're supposed to experience. So that's what I started to develop. I've created a 10-day global and international studies virtual field school um, that was focused on workshop leaders from around the world. So we had like an Uzbek zine artist. We had a Chilean muralist. We had an indigenous hoop dancer and an indigenous potter. Um, we had an English watercolor painter. We had a Bollywood dancer from India living in Canada now. Anyway, a whole host of workshop leaders. I think we had 14 workshops in, in total. And we connected with a lot of people. So the criteria was they needed to be able to speak English because that's the language that the students speak. And we had to work out the time differences. So, so, so many people were like of a heritage from somewhere else, but living in Canada. But we also connected with, we connected with uh, a Venezuelan artist who's living in Munich, Germany, doing Japanese bookbinding as her, as her craft, which I just thought was so, she was amazing. I want to talk with so, her. Yeah. And we connected with, with a, a faculty member in China who taught us how to make dumplings and did paper cutting and calligraphy with us. So there were, there were logistical things to consider, like the language and, and the time frame. But students had to get all of the materials for each of the respective crafts. And then that's what we, that was part of our class. So we had sort of, I wanted to create a field school. So in the morning, we had a global mental health embodiment activity. This was important to me because I think mental health should be part of pedagogy. I think considering students' mental health and faculty mental health, to be honest, should be built into the way we do business. And I think learning can happen when we're all in a place of calm and not in a place of stress. Learning is more fruitful. So we started the day with global mental health embodiment practices. It wasn't necessarily for students to really dig into the mental health practice, but to learn from mental health practices all over the world. So I think the most popular one was the Sisu cold shower, which is a Finnish practice, like, you know, the polar dips. So we all joined Zoom at 8.30 in the morning. And then we're like, okay, two minutes, freezing cold shower. Let's go do it and come back. <laughs> I almost died. I Yeah. It's sort of exhilarating. Like I recommend it. And then we came back and chatted about what we did. And we did, we did uh, yoga. We did meditation. We did Tai Chi. We did community walks. We did herbal foot baths. We did a community run where we're all connected on our phones. And um, so that was, the course was framed in thinking about our physicality in addition to our intellectual growth. So we had the standard kind of readings. Our readings were associated with each workshop leader. So we had a reading, for example, on paper cutting in China. We would discuss the reading kind of as a way to honor our workshop leader. Like so that when we went into the workshop, we'd done some some of the hard work of figuring out the context of the craft that they were sharing with us. So we did that in the morning and then in the afternoon, usually we'd have the workshop with our workshop, international workshop leader. So that's the course. And I think students really like it. And I'm proud of, I'm really proud of it. And I hope that I can shed light on it as a way to illustrate that we can do international experiential learning, not only virtually, but in a different way that is more inclusive because it was inclusive for people of all bodies. You don't have to have, you don't have to travel. Um, people with dependents at home can still participate. People with low income can still participate. 
that's that's the goal. And I I just learned so much from the workshop leaders. Like these are amazing people. Me, I just gained a lot from hearing their insights and perspectives and stories. And unlike a traditional field course where you go to one place, we had just a breadth of of people with different histories. So I thought that was really valuable too. You know, uh, we've been talking about Haiti. Can you tell us about one wonderful Haitian dish or one food that you think people should try? So we don't have to do either of those, but think about that for a second. Is there anything I should have asked? There's a few things that I miss and love and the only glitches i'm not sure people can recreate it people with more culinary skills than i have might be able to recreate it but there's there's something called maimoulin avec legumes which is cornmeal with mushed vegetables on top and that is something so i'm sure other people who have had children have this experience where the first thing you get to eat after you've had a baby is your new favorite food or like that thing. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was, this is what happened. So I told you about the, uh, Salette, my daughter was born in Deschapelle hospital and I was starving. It was noon. And they, they were, they told me don't eat anything because you might have to have a C-section, but I was like in a faint. So Josh and my sister-in-law were at the hospital with me and they had gotten lunch and they left for a minute. They got my moulin, and legume, which is my favorite, which is the cornmeal with the vegetable mush vegetables on top. And they also had a chocolate bar and a Coke. And I like downed that, all of that. And that for me is the perfect meal. My moulin, legume, a chocolate bar and a Coke. So the my moulin is cornmeal with like delicious, I think there's tomato paste in there and lots of garlic. And then the legume is mostly like cabbage and turnip and carrots and they mush it it's just delicious. Yeah, sorry. I don't know if people can make that. The chocolate bar and the Coke, I don't think are too difficult. Any convenience store, and you can recreate my perfect <laughs> dessert. <laughs> I'm going to look for a recipe for that. Mary Lynn, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you for coming uh, on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Sean. That was really fun. Thank you for listening to Dispatch 7. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. And please check back in two weeks for the next episode.